thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, your weekly podcast on the IMDb's top 250 movies recorded from the Blanket Fort. I am joined, as always, by my host, The Pledge, Tyler Hannon. Hello, I'm John Cutter, <laughs> as played by Michael Kide. <laughs> Joining us this week is return guest, The Turn, <laughs> Gabe Akins. Hey. <laughs> and I am your prestige, Kayla St. Ange. Welcome to the podcast again, Gabe. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I am surviving <laughs> in the blanket fort. <laughs> yeah, we're wearing uh, sweatpants and sweaters in the blanket fort. We're intelligent human beings. And... I made the horrible mistake of wearing a sweatshirt, and I am now sweating to death. How yeah, about you, Gabe? kind of toasty in there. It's pretty toasty, yeah. You sweating over there, Gabe? How's life? No, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty comfortable right now, temperature-wise. He's probably got the air conditioning running. Yeah, that would have been smart. Man. Anyway, so, uh, getting into it. (laughs) Gabe, have you watched anything good recently? I have watched something interesting recently. Yeah. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I went to the movie theater. Holy shit. The one near me just got renovated, and it's really nice now. And they've got those cool, like, Coke machines that have a hundred different combinations. Oh my god, did you have cherry vanilla Coke? I did not, sadly. Okay, First Did of all, you have one of the 200 options available okay, to you? There is no option besides cherry vanilla Coke. Uh, it is cherry vanilla Coke. Anyway, sorry, continue. This podcast brought to you <laughs> by cherry vanilla Coke. Brought to you by the refreshing flavor of cherry vanilla Coke. Clink! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I went to the theater and I saw Black Mass, which, I mean, it was our favorite genre, the white crime drama. So was it was it wicked smart? It was it was wicked smart. <laughs> wicked smart. It, it it was an all can, right movie. However, I will say that Johnny Depp can act, and sometimes you forget that. But he was really really good in this. Johnny Depp, underneath all those layers of makeup, his those eyes could penetrate through all those layers and just gets across to you that Boston. He was Boston, terrifying. Boston. Like every time he was Boston. on screen, I just. He looked like he was going to murder someone, and it was it was terrifying. I, that's kind of what I've heard about the movie, that it's mostly just Johnny Depp and also a lot of people dressed up around Johnny Depp. Is it like Johnny Depp basically being like, fuck you guys, see, I can play someone who's not Jack Sparrow. How was pretty, Benedict pretty Cumber- much. What about Boston Benedict Cumberbatch? I was going to say, the most unsettling part of that movie is Benedict Cumberbatch walking into the movie and then opening his mouth and then a Boston accent comes out. You could have just stopped with opening his mouth and I'm already terrified. You could have stopped with Benedict Cumberbatch walking on screen and I would have been terrified. Possible extraterrestrial Benedict Cumberbatch. Wait, Adam Scott is in that movie? Adam Scott's in that movie. Oh, now I gotta see this movie for Adam Scott being like the 10th build person. He's in it for like 10 minutes. Yep. Worth it. Yeah. Also, Corey Stoll. All right. Jesse Plemons is in it. Yeah, all these people who you said don't really matter because Johnny Depp is everything. The, the, movie, basi- you- the movie is basically a showcase for Johnny Depp to act and then things happen around Johnny Depp. I mean, that's how I live my life mostly. Just what would Johnny Depp do and just worshiping Johnny Depp throughout my entire day and just... That's not true at all. I like to surround myself with Depp everywhere. That's so not true, though. You don't know that. I do. Okay. We live together. <laughs> <laughs> 
fine. I don't have a poster of Johnny Depp on the ceiling so I can fall asleep to those beautiful eyes every day. Oh, my God. Can I tell, like, a fun anecdote about Johnny Depp? Actually, you know what? This is going to come up later, but you know what movie Johnny Depp is in? What? Transcendence. (laughs) So I changed my mind. Fuck Johnny Depp. (laughs) That was why I was really confused about your, like, adamance that you (sighs) love him so much. I I lied. It was a lie. I just... I did it for the bit. So at the, the, I did it for the bit. Oh my god! At the video store that I worked at, um, a couple years ago, this woman called and asked if we had any like Johnny Depp posters because her mother was like in the hospital or something, and she just like really loved Johnny Depp, so she wanted to surprise her with a poster. So I like dug around in our back room for twenty minutes and found a poster for the Rum Diaries, which you may remember is literally wow. just Johnny Depp's face. And I gave her the poster, and she cried when I gave it to her. And I was like. This is, like, a touching moment, but, like, you realize that the movie the poster is for is The Rum Diaries, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> This sounds like a really bad Upworthy story. <laughs> oh, my God. She might be really into Hunter S. Thompson. You don't know. Possibly. I don't know. I mean, who isn't really into Hunter S. Thompson? Me? Also Wait, you've me. never told me this before. Oh, my God. Gabe, have you watched anything else recently? <laughs> I have watched something else recently, and it's something that was talked about on the last episode. Which I I disagree on oh, the consensus opinion that this podcast <laughs> had on it, <laughs> and that thing um, is Scream The Queens? Walking Dead. Oh, not Scream Queens. Okay, <laughs> not Scream Queens. So, Gabe. So, please you... tell us your wrong opinion. Wow, dig <laughs> wow. much, Gabe. Tell us why you like this terrible. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, tell, say words, Gabe. Words. I, I came on this podcast to have a good time, and I'm honestly feeling so attacked right now. <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Gabe. Don't tell us anyway, of your show. So, The Walking Dead, what I like about it, and this has been true of all of AMC's flagship shows. Uh, I would classify those being Walking Dead, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad. And maybe it has something to do with AMC. Maybe they just hire people who know how to do this. It has a really strong sense of character for all of their characters. Like, you can plot from season one until now, season six, and everything that these characters do and their motivations and actions, all of it just really makes sense of who the character is. There's never really a time where you go, now, like, why did they do that? Because that doesn't make any sense. They have a very strong sense of who their characters are. And that's definitely something I would not be able to pick up on, having right, dropped since out you after... missed four seasons. <laughs> but that's saying... because I couldn't get past all the right. other stuff that happened in the one. If the show is so boring that it leaves people in tears, does the character development matter? <laughs> The thing, the thing is, which <laughs> oh, shots I've, fired. <laughs> Sorry, Gabe. I've I've talked to Tyler about this before. We've had conversations, and it was brought up on a podcast I list, I used to listen to, Hollywood Prospectus, over Rest in on peace. Grantland. Rest in peace. But the thing, it's unfair when watching television. Like, if so, if you see an episode and you're like, "Oh my god, this is bad," but then the creators or someone else who watched it is like no, wait for it. It's going to get really good. It's not really fair to make someone sit through bad episodes to get to a good episode because you don't know that the good episode's coming. Like, the episode is bad when you're watching it. However, even though that's really unfair, 
you really do have to make it through season two and like half of season three of Walking Dead, That's and then it so turns into Walking an actual Dead. good show. Wow, you're right. That sounds like a really good use of my time. <laughs> <laughs> like and, this is why, at least instead, when it comes to the first seasons of Park and Recreations or Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's like six to ten episodes, not two and a half seasons of episodes. I wouldn't even say that the first season of Parks and Rec is necessarily bad. It's just not the same show. Like, it's literally not the same show because they were going for something completely different and then they decided to make their own show and therefore it became the greatest treasure that mankind has ever known. Okay, and uh, so back to The Walking Dead and not <laughs> the weekly Parks and Rec rewatch session. <laughs> anyway, I actually and... haven't watched any Parks and Rec this week. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> back to The sorry, Walking sorry. Dead. <laughs> I will say it's not... It's not a great show, and I think part of that is thus the limitations of the premise, since, I mean, zombies, so basically the show has to be some sort of, they go somewhere, it's safe, and then it's not safe. (laughs) But it's capable of some very good individual episodes. Some of the individual episodes are some of the best episodes of television I've seen within the last couple of years. Is there, like, perhaps... Okay, so um, Tyler hates the fact that I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And the reason I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer is because it is so long and there's, like, honestly so much to slog through before you really get to, like, the good stuff. I no, wonder... there is not that much... The second season is considered one of the... This, that's neither here nor there. Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. what, finishing the sentence the that seasons. I started. Second season. I wonder if there's, like, a way to, like, cliff notes The Walking Dead together in which you, like, kind of just, like, excise the bad episodes, but you can still... Because, like, I had a friend that had offered to put together an edit of Buffy the Vampire Slayer in which it would make the show shorter and I would get all of the context without having to watch, like, I don't know, ventriloquist dummy murderer episode. That was fun. For example. That would really help The Walking Dead. So, like, maybe that's really the issue at the heart of the show is that it just needs to trim the fat. So just trim down those 13 episodes each season to three episodes, and you're good. Oh, wait, it's 16, isn't it? 16. Oh, it is four. 16. It gets and four, like four I, episodes. Like, season two definitely needs to get slugged out. And part of the problem was in the first, I think, three or four seasons, they were switching showrunners every season. Yes, they mm, did. That will do it. They had Frank Darabont was the creator, and then they had a new guy the second season, and was the, new, other, the third guy the third season or the fourth season? I think third i think so too Are the and now that they like... now that they've stuck with one it actually has a sense of momentum and purpose to it you know that kind of reminds me of like the issue with like the harry potter movies is that like they had a different director for almost every movie Alfonso. but then they had the same director for the last four movies and like that's when it kind of like finally solidified into like a cohesive I don't know. I really Style. feel the first two the first two movies had the same director, and I think they really, really nailed it. With I those like two. okay. I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I like the first two Harry Potter movies. They're fine. They're the most faithful yeah, to the books. They have kind of that like childlike wonder that was sort of excised from the rest of them. And you just don't want to talk about The Walking Dead. No, I'm so this, this is related. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, uh, important question: How is Kayla's favorite character doing? Carl. Quarrel. <laughs> he's 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 gotten better. He's not 
like he's not blatantly terrible anymore. He's just <laughs> passively terrible. Passively terrible. It's just wow, I really don't want this character in my life, but I don't feel the need to stab him in the neck. I, I guess he can go without being murdered for now. <laughs> but I really need him to go by the end of the season. Also, just, another uh, another good thing about Walking Dead, which doesn't really increase the overall quality of like the writing in the show or anything, and they still got problems in that they seem to introduce black main male characters just so they can kill the last main black male character. Ah, yes. But but really, (laughs) Walking Dead is actually, their cast is quietly really diverse. They've got quite a few, they've got quite a few black main characters, uh, a lot of Hispanic characters. It's, It's not in a case of like, look at us, we're diverse, go us. It just is kind of that way, which is refreshing. That I will give them props for. <laughs> so we've given them props for two things. What was, wait, diversity, uh, what was the other one? Characters. Oh, Their yeah. Characters are oh, yeah. consistent. Thing. All right, so. We have, you have <laughs> changed our minds of The Walking Dead. Game. No, did you, did you have anything you wanted to wrap that up with? Just the home run that'll really get us into The Walking Dead. It's good now, watch it. It's <laughs> good now. Can we, is it possible to jump in, in the, on any specific season, or do you really need to know what happened before? What if we read the Wikipedia synopses for if season you d- one If you just two? read the Wikipedia entry for season two and then jumped in, you'll be fine. Or really, here's what you need to know about season two. They're on a farm for a really long time. That's what the internet told us. All right. Yeah. All right. I will consider this because our friendship is meaningful to me, but I will make no promises. Oh, <laughs> if you watch The Walking Dead before Buffy, I <laughs> something will break in me. Also, <laughs> one thing to wrap it up. We are now to the point where, because of Fear the Walking Dead and how they are setting it up, there will now never be a time when there is not a Walking Dead show on AMC. I have to, I have to go do something, and that something is not throwing myself into a river. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I have actually had time to watch things this week, which is what? a miracle. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. So the two – well, okay, I guess – um, we did go to the movie theater to see Crimson Peak. I'm going to let Tyler talk about that yeah. because I actually watched two other things that I'm more interested in talking about. Oh, you are fired. And also because you need things to talk about. So anyway, um, <laughs> this week I watched Kingsman, The Secret Service, which was a movie that I had like been sort of blindly recommending to people at the video store that I worked at because I'd heard enough good things about it. They all loved it. They loved it. And I hadn't watched it yet. And I have to say, um, it was actually pretty enjoyable. Like it definitely requires a huge suspension of disbelief about almost everything that happens in it. <laughs> and like now, in terms of like physics or like the plot character turns and plot and things like plot mostly (laughs) like for instance the main so not the usual movie suspension of disbelief but something more like the plot is so outlandish that you kind of just have to be like all right in this world this can happen okay and is it one of those things where the plot just exists so cool things can happen um, no, what well, kind of, honestly, because, like, the main focus of the movie is obviously the huge action sequences and gazelle knife girl cutting people in half with her, like, amputee leg knives. <laughs> Did this just turn into Grindhouse all of a sudden? Pretty much. Okay, so, yeah, so the, the main villain's, like, henchman gazelle is a W amputee, and so she walks on these metal leg things that have knives for heels. And she literally, the, one of the opening scenes of the movie is her literally slicing a man in half with it which 
uh, my friend that I watched it with and I agreed was probably not possible <laughs> in any by any stretch of the imagination. No, Kale, the spine is easily severed. We have tested in this half. ourselves in this apartment, and we uh, know. Yeah. Anyway, so um, the, the action sequences are pretty fun. Like, the plot is ridiculous, but it's also fun. It's also kind of interesting to see Colin Firth play, like, a total badass and not just, like, a stuffy English... Like, he is still an English gentleman, but he, like, uses it for badassery as opposed to stuffery. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, okay, so there is a scene towards the end of the movie that makes no sense. So the, the gist of the movie is that... Samuel L. Jackson's evil character wants to get rid of like what he the people on Earth that he considers to not be the elite people. So he programs these like nine percent. Exactly. So he programs these cell phones with this evil signal that once set off makes everybody go nuts and kill each other. Again, so the huge, cool, (laughs) huge suspension of disbelief. So that's also a Stephen King book. Um, so one of the people that he kidnaps is like a princess from Sweden, and at the end of the movie, like she's been locked up the whole movie for some reason because she didn't agree with it. But he was like, "You're important. I have to keep you." Because princess, it makes no sense. Princess in a he kills he kills like a million other world leaders for not agreeing with him, but her for some reason he has to keep because we need a princess in the castle to be rescued by the main little boy. Sort of. So the guy, the main guy, Eggsy comes through and she's like, "Let me out! Let me out!" And he's like, "Sorry, I got to go save the world." And she's like, "Oh, if you save the world." Well, he's like, if, okay, sorry. Let me. So the main guy, Eggsy, comes through, and she's like, oh, let me out, let me out. Uh, and he's he goes, if you kiss me, I'll let you out. And then there's a huge explosion. He's like, ah, shoot, sorry, princess, I got to go save the world. And she goes, if you save the world, I'll do more than kiss you. If you save the world, we can do it in the ass. And I was uh... just like, what? <laughs> like, it is so, like, so there's, like, really no love interest in the movie. There are, like, female Kingsman agents who kick ass the whole movie. So the scene is so horrifically out of place. I literally do not understand how it made it past a test audience and a studio and all of this stuff. The only thing, so my friend, like, so Ben and I came to the conclusion that the only thing that could have possibly made that made sense is that they were like, oh, there's no romance in here. Clearly it will never work. But it needs to be over the top and hilarious. It's not even, like, it doesn't even fit with, like, it breaks the main. <laughs> it breaks the main character's character so badly, though, because it, it just it makes no sense. The whole movie, he is not at all focused on like trying to be with someone or whatever. So then, like the ending shot of the movie before the credits roll is him like going back to get her, and then like she like rolls over and like displays her ass for him, and like that's the end of the movie. And then there's a post credit scene where like he actually like goes and rescues his mom from an abusive relationship. And I'm like, why is that not the last scene of the actual movie? Like, what happened between de- like script? development and everything else and like how many people signed off on this and were like you know what this thing where he saves his mother from an abusive boyfriend is good but what if like we put that after the credits and we ended the movie with Swedish princess ass fucking like I just don't yeah, understand. I was just gonna say butt sex you just went all the way. <laughs> like it just makes no sense I don't that, get it because it's it's funny it's not it's though. Sexy. It's not it's funny. Edgy. That, that kind of enforces my thing that when I saw trailers for this movie, I thought it just looked like straight white boy the movie. I mean, it see it's not though because like the 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 main character guy actually is not the one who makes it into the Kingsman. He chickens out on cuz okay, so the, sorry spoilers, but like the final test is like they have to raise this puppy and then they give them a gun and tell them to shoot the puppy. And he chickens out and doesn't do it, but the girl shoots the dog in the leg and then takes the dog home and, like, fixes it and gets to be in the Kingsman. So it's the girl that makes the cut. 
And but like, it was smart and did not kill the puppy. Exactly. So the whole movie like has this undercurrent of like actual female empowerment. Like the gazelle is literally the strongest person. Like she kills with impunity pretty much. I mean, obviously she loses in the end because she's the bad guy. But like, I don't know. So it just like was so jarring and strange to me that that was the sudden turn of events that happened. And I guess from what I've heard, like I've talked to a couple people about it and everybody was like, yeah, I really liked that movie except for that. So I just don't know what they were intending on. Even in like podcasts I've listened to about that movie, like they'll talk about that and be like, "Yeah, that was weird." It just does. Yeah, and it just kind of upsetting. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense, and it takes kind of the whole like, I don't know. I felt like there was a pretty good balance of like gender equality throughout the movie, and then they were just like, "And by the way, James Bond has sex with women." So in our spy movie, that's no monster James Bond. We're also gonna do this because reasons. <laughs> so butt sex. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so the other thing that I started watching this week, um, I finally started watching Attack on Titan, Yay. which I am super behind the curve on. And I don't have a lot to say about that because Just obviously everybody's been talking about that for a while now. But holy moly, that show has no chill. No, that Every... show is chill free. <laughs> Every episode leaves me with, like, a constricted chest and a stopped heart. Like, every single episode, something happens that makes me, like, physically jump or gasp or I cried at the end of one episode. Everything's awful. The series. I just don't, uh, like, oh my god. Everyone you know will die. The series. And, like, the Titans are so creepy. The first time they came on screen, I was straight terrified i physically recoiled (laughs) while watching just because of that first like super evil grin face like oh man yeah so that show is really good and i really don't have a lot to say about it other than the fact that i am eagerly awaiting being able to finish it and having the rest of my shattered broken heart extracted from my chest So, yeah, uh, Tyler, what have you watched recently? Well, speaking of my shattered, broken heart being rent from my chest, I don't actually have anything in that vein. Uh, I, wa- I rewatched Coherence, but that's not what I want to talk about, even though it's really good. I started watching season two of Penny Dreadful, but that is also not what I want to talk about, <laughs> God even it. though I quite enjoy that. What I do want to talk about, firstly, is a movie we mentioned already. We saw Crimson Peak. Now, we, two weeks ago, we reviewed Pan's Labyrinth, the 2000, blanket on it, seven, six, 2006 movie from Guillermo del Toro, Spanish language film. It's, um, it's kind of, it's kind of similar to Crimson Peak in that it's like this beautiful period, character period piece that has elements of horror and the supernatural to it. But Crimson Peak, I'll start with the good. I'll start with the good. I I liked it. Uh, It is a gorgeous movie it is without a doubt one of the most gorgeous movies we're going to see in a theater this year it's just the cinematography is tremendous you see whether it's the whether it's the early scenes in like sophisticated america or the later scenes on the chilly british hilltop with all the snow and the red clay bleeding through it on this dilapidated mansion it is gorgeous throughout the uh, effects go on to like the ghost story in it and the things that are haunting them. Properly terrifying, gruesome. Lots of Doug Jones. Good old Doug Jones always coming. The costumes through. are really good too. The co- yeah, it was the costumes. I don't. If people actually dressed then, I feel sorry for everyone, especially the woman who had to wear elaborate night dresses to bed. 
I just keep saying no wonder people take long baths back then because it's the only time you could really relax outside of restricting clothing. Uh, it's, it's not scary. That's the thing I did not realize going in and that people have been emphasizing it since it came out. It's a gothic romance with a ghost story in it. It is not spooky despite having a few scares in it. It's it's unfortunately part of the reason the movie did not fare well in the box office and has had some mixed reaction from critics and it audiences. It was marketed completely wrong. Yeah, because like, everybody thought it was going to be a spooky ghost story. And it's not. It's a well-acted, pretty, not totally solid like not not totally well designed well drawn out uh character story i really like a lot of the characters mia vazakowska uh the queen the yes that (laughs) the queen jessica chastain hamming it up beautifully and uh good old internet's favorite tom hiddleston being charming just just the charming man uh, the turn, the the twist in it, you see coming, and it's it's a predictable movie, but it's a pretty movie, and it's a well done movie. It's not among my favorites from Del Toro, but it got the job done. I think what the movie really suffers from is that it's so caught up in trying to be a certain type of story, yeah, that it neglects the literal hundreds of years of advancement in writing that we've had because gothic romances and like kind of like that penny dreadful stuff from like the turn of the century is really noted for like having like weak characters having kind of ridiculously overtly happy endings and i really think that it would have been more interesting to take that framework of the penny dreadful and kind of do a neo-gothic romance Mm. where the characters actually develop and where there are higher stakes and where you kind of like where you don't just see this like magical happy ending working out at the end and like there's like no point in the movie where I felt like Mia Vashikoshko was actually in danger mostly because the movie the movie starts with the last scene where she's clearly still alive so there's not really spoilers sorry no it's fine (laughs) (laughs) so there's not like there's not high stakes there's not a sense of real dread or terror at any point in the movie because you know that she's going to be fine the ghosts are going to go away or be happy in the end or whatever the ghosts aren't even a big deal in the end that's the whole like that's the whole thing is like the ghosts are just a part of the story i guess yeah it's weird because i don't even really understand in the end like they don't really matter at all no they don't they just in fact it's almost like why were they there in the first they reveal the twist which i won't reveal what the twist is like they reveal the twist and then they just go away for the most part there are no more ghosts yeah it's very strange it seems like well there's the one moment but that's not it just seems like they were underused there is a little bit of guillermo del toro's trademark oh i was not expecting body horror in this way suddenly where people's faces are messed up. Oh, God. Yeah. That was horrible. Which Del Toro does that. And you know what? There was the horror right there. He just packed in that little bit he, right Yeah, there. he's very good at making a very gruesome and uncomfortable scene. It was. It goes back to when we were talking about like Japanese horror movies and how they have a tendency to not look away from the bad thing that is happening, whereas American mm. horror is very much like jump out, scare you, and then immediately retreat. But, yeah. So I, I liked Crimson Peak, too. Um 
I will probably watch it again. Yeah. But it's definitely not going to be my favorite. It's not going to be my go-to scary movie. Well, it's not even scary. It's not going to be my go-to Halloween season movie. I heard someone say, like I heard this on a podcast, which I cite a different podcast every week. I can't remember which one this time, but they've made mention of how like the that uh, Guillermo del Toro's English language films haven't worked for them quite as well as the Spanish language films. And I was like, you know. My favorite one is still Pan's Labyrinth by far, and I like because I didn't like Pacific Rim as much as you and Monica did. I and like Crimson Peak was fine, but I still need to watch the Hellboys, and so I. Still that is another curious sure. thing: how we kind of touched on it with Pan's Labyrinth about if having the film be in a different language makes it easier to forgive certain things because we don't really understand what's happening. We're at the mercy of the subtitles and the cinematography. So Guillermo del Toro, what you're saying is Guillermo del Toro has never been as good as we thought No, he no, was. no, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying I, no, I'm just saying I wonder yeah. like if that plays into it at all. Like if mm. we're just more likely to be forgiving because we aren't really 100% sure what's no, happening or like I, how the performance is playing out. Like not that I don't think we get enough credit, but I think Pan's Labyrinth is legitimately just that great of a movie in compare like and not even in comparison to these like by itself is a great Well, great if you think movie. about it, it has that very still simplistic premise and that very simplistic res- like resolution. I think it just happens to work better. Yeah, like as well acted as the characters are in Crimson Peak, you still don't feel for them the same way you do for in, for uh, the characters it. in yeah. Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, I just... It, it was very well executed, and there were certain parts of the characters in the writing I liked, but it just... In, in the end, the writing did not hold up to the visual standards. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so... All right, no, no, I got two... I get two things. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I thought you had one. I have I been... Thought... So you know this... This this theater thing Gabe spoke of, and how yes. we went to one to see Crimson Peak. Yes. Oh. I went to it again. Oh, I forgot. About I went this. to see Black Mass. You went to go see Crimson Peak. And and I saw Goosebumps. <laughs> I saw Goosebumps. Goosebumps, the seminal books from our childhood that terrified us and frightened us, and probably wouldn't stand up now. But I'm not going to read them again and ruin that memory. I it, obviously we've had enough things fall short and be campy and bad. It was actually pretty good. It was not great. It was kind of cheesing. Came, but I, what I realized partway through is, oh, yeah, this is a kid's movie. This is wholly a kid's movie with a few references for adults and for people who are a little older. And which made me a little bit more forgiving of it in certain ways. But it, it it's fun. It's not something I'm going to cherish forever and pass on to my children. But it's also not an example of terrible nostalgia kitsch that was made into a piece of terrible nostalgia kitsch movie that is totally worthless and toss away it's fun and uh, there are a couple things especially that i liked about it i thought jack black is the most preposterous <laughs> he is so heightened and so over the top in that movie as rl stein I, I i loved it it was incredible and dylan minette as the boy was pretty solid. What I liked the most actually was the relationship between the kid, uh, Zach played by Dylan Minnette and his mom, who was played by Amy Ryan. I thought that relationship was really cool. And it was just a really, they, they, they joked around and related to each other in a way. I kind of feel in, that I talk with my family where it's, they're joking a lot, but it's not in a fake Hollywood way. It actually felt kind of true to life. Like, these two have suffered the loss of their husband and father, but there's still a lot of love there, and they're working through it. And I thought that, more than anything else, kind of shown through. 
But also, you got all the Goosebumps monsters being scary, Jack, uh, Jack Black being ridiculous, and having fun with it. I don't know what the hell Ken Marino's doing in this movie, because they totally waste him. I was so disappointed that they had Ken Marino in there just to have him pathetically hit on the mom a few times, and that's it. I, it just it's, it's a waste. Ken Marino's done some fun, good horror comedy, and he just has nothing to do here. And towards the end, not uh, at a certain point in the movie, we do have the Stan Lee moment where the uh, the person who created the thing being represented cameos. And it's just a little weirder because he's being represented in the movie as well. So you have Jack Black as R.L. Stein saying hello, Mr. Black, to R.L. Stein as Mr. Black. And it's fun. I was really hoping that that was going to turn into R.L. Stein playing Jack Black in the movie. No, he's just Mr. Black. <laughs> yes, please. At <laughs> that was a missed opportunity. But you know what? No shots at R.L. Stein, but I don't think he has the acting chops to pull off of Jack Black. It's true. For some reason, I always think that R.L. Stein also is like a clone of Stephen King. Like when I think of oh, R.L. Stein, oh. I see Stephen King's face for some reason. One of my f- one of the more fun parts of the movie, and I'm just going to talk about a few of my favorite parts of the movie, that if you want to see this movie, I'm going to spoil for you because they're fun and I want to talk about them. One of them is R.L. Stein will not admit he's R.L. Stein. The character, not the actual R.L. Stein. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so our hero, our young, young hero, tells him, uh, you know what? Uh, it's good you're not R.L. Stein because Stephen King or something like that. And watching Jack Black as R.L. Stein go off and, Stephen King? Let me tell you a little thing about Steve King. Steve King wishes he could write as well as me. And you know what? I have sold more books than him. Do you hear anyone talk about that? More books than Steve King. And it's just, it's fun, you know? <laughs> and from now, on, from now on, he will always be Steve King to me. Steve there is King. no Steven. He is Steve King now. That's Steve. Steve. <laughs> also... This movie, it's, this movie is mostly a kids' movie. It doesn't have a lot of like adult references that totally work. But there's a moment where R.L. Stein like has to go off to write something, and this the 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 school has set up a set for The Shining, and so you have a writer sneaking off to write this very important manuscript, and the only place he has to do it is a set of The Shining. That is amazing, and I appreciated that reference very much. It, it, it was just like, oh, the rest of the, this movie isn't totally like that. Like, it's not full of pop culture references, but it had that one, and thank you for whoever put that in, because I, I loved it. Now that I've taken away all the parts about the movie that would be best served seeing them without hearing about them in the, beforehand. On that note of Goosebumps being spoiled for you, the movie that we're talking about this week is The Prestige. Every great magic trick consists of three acts. The first act is called The Pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. But of course, it probably isn't. The second act is called The Turn. He's obsessed with discovering your method. The magician makes this ordinary something do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it. That's why there's a third act called The Prestige. This is the part with the twists and turns, where lives hang in the balance. Julie, come on! And you see something shocking you've never seen before. This was built by a man who can actually do what magicians pretend to do. Real magic. I know what you really are. 
How does he do it? You want the truth. Nothing is impossible. I'll break it down, bro. No more secrets. Secrets of my life. So The Prestige is a movie that came out in the year 2006. It is directed by IMDb's most favored director, Christopher Nolan. Um, It is based on a novel by Christopher Priest. And let me just tell you, um, I really like this movie, and I feel like that's really important to preface the discussion that is about to happen. (laughs) I just want you all to keep in mind that I do like this movie. It is a good movie. This movie was also... (laughs) Pretty successful. It earned $53 million in the domestic box office and $56 million in the foreign box office per uh, per box office mojo. And so achieved over $100 million globally, which is pretty solid on a $40 million budget. The fun thing that I haven't mentioned, we haven't talked about it all yet, is box office mojo has an adjuster. So it'll talk about... So this movie came out in 2006. Mm-hmm. Movies did not co- did not cost as much in 2006 as they did in 2015. So it has adjusters. So while it made 53 million in 2006, in the terms of 2015 dollars, it actually made 63 million dollars, which is pretty solid. Not a lot, but you know it's solid. It helped push along his career as he did those little Batman movies on the side. 2006 was a magical time where every single movie didn't need to be an action-packed comic book fucking blockbuster <laughs> debacle. Okay, Chris Evans enthusiast, enthusiast, tell us about Look, these all right. comic book adaptation blockbusters. All, how dare you drag the name of Chris Evans into the mud like this? You know what? He is just a precious, beautiful, wonderful man. This week, the Chris Evans quarter is mine, <laughs> and I will say that. <laughs> Oh, no! I had a completely organic Chris Evans corner, and I completely forgot. We watched Scott Pilgrim this week. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and uh, the person who is in Scott Pilgrim no, is Chris Evans. The Prestige. Scott Pilgrim actually is great, but The Prestige made over $100 million in the box office globally. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, including one for Art Direction and one for... Uh, and one for cinematography. Which are the two most appropriate awards for it to be nominated for, I must say. Also, I'm just going to get this out of the way now. Uh, the cinematographer for most Christopher Nolan movies, including this one, is Wally Pfister. Wally Pfister's directorial debut was uh, the piece of trash transcendence that ruined my life and wasted Killian Murphy's time. <laughs> and I am very upset about they it. They burned our crops. They poisoned the water supply. <laughs> and now they're going to come for our children. Yeah, Wally Pfister! <laughs> Okay, I'm good. Just anyway. Damn you, so, Fister. The Prestige, which damn is really you. not directed by Wally Fister. <laughs> but cinematographized by him. Know your talents, people. Know your talents and just stick to them. Don't go outside of them. <laughs> Shots fired at Wally Fister. Anyway. So, The Prestige, as directed by Chris Nolan? Chris Nolan. Christopher Nolan. And co-written by his brother John. Johnny Jack. Nolan. Isn't it Jack Nolan? No, it's Jonathan Nolan. Is it? Whoops. Good old Johnny Nolan. Johnny Nolan. (laughs) Yes, that guy. (laughs) Tyler is broken. Johnny and Topher Nolan. (laughs) Oh my god. Gabe, what are your uh, opening thoughts on this movie while Tyler composes himself? Whatever just happened. (laughs) I would also like to preface that I... I adore this movie, even though when you get down to it, it's a goddamn silly movie. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I also really like this movie. I feel I am more forgiving of its silliness than these two are going to be. Which is I, weird I, because I, I just went I, off I, I genuinely love this movie. I, I, I tweeted about this earlier. Just in terms of pure entertainment, this might be in my top ten. A lot of people consider this their favorite uh, Christopher Nolan movies. You know, now that I'm actually thinking about it, it may also be my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, but yeah, we'll get into that. So if, if you don't know, the premise of the movie is actually, it is set up to be very simple. It's just about these two magicians battling it out. Hugh Jackman's character has a horrible grudge against Christian Bale's character because he feels that Christian Bale was responsible for the death of his wife who drowned on stage but then it gets real kooky real this fast. is a tale about obsession and secrecy and the dangers of what, that come when you achieve, try to achieve the greatest art possible and also that science is literally magic apparently. science is literally magic also david bowie is your god yeah. Also, Tesla got the short shaft because Thomas Edison's a dick. That's a very small that's point. real. That's <laughs> that real. That is real. That's real. But that that's like, oh yeah, Thomas Edison's men are here, and then later the things burned, and we don't really go into Thomas Edison being much of a dick in the movie. He's just like this looming force, as Thomas Edison always is in all of our lives. It's almost like a metaphor. Oh shit! Oh god! You just blew my mind. Are you Chris <laughs> Nolan? I might be. Are you Chris Nolan? Because you just blew my mind. <laughs> and yeah. also, also, I just rated you 8.5 like on Half IMDb. an hour of just how Nikola Tesla, the real person, is actually a goddamn badass. Dude, yeah. I'm not going to do that, though, because we do need to talk about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to fire shots at Christopher Nolan. You thought I hated Wally Fister just for Kayla going off on Chris Nolan's ass. I don't. Oh. Okay. Again, I want to. Again, I want to really preface this with: I do not hate Christopher Nolan. I, in fact, really like Christopher Nolan, and I really mm. like his movies. You enjoy those Batman movies. That being said, enjoy Christopher Inception. Nolan is not the greatest director ever, and anybody who thinks so is a goddamn moron. I don't understand where this like rabid, intense maniacal defense of him comes from because like he's a good director he's a decent writer but so when I was researching for this movie I came across an IMDB discussion board that was like guys Christopher Nolan is way too clever for the movie's ending literally to just be that science is magic and Hugh Jackman can clone himself so they came up with this entire like involved ridiculous thing where he was really tricking him the whole time and there was actually no cloning and all this stuff, and then was immediately refuted in the first reply, which was deeply satisfying. But it's just like the the ending of the movie is silly. The whole uh, like the whole third act of the movie is fucking ridiculous. And I'm on sorry. This, that's on this just note, we should probably say if you haven't noticed by now that there are just going to be massive, massive spoilers for this. Every pod, every episode of the podcast is massive spoilers. This movie especially is like impossible this, like, to talk the, about without spoiling the entire yeah. movie. Yeah, so, uh, I just... Okay. How, how much did you know going into the movie? I've seen the movie before. Okay. Yeah, we have both already seen the movie. Which I do want to okay. say, I feel like that kind of sucks, because I really don't think the movie ever works the same way again after you've seen it once. It's kind of that same thing with Memento. Which is not... Which I th feel like should be taken into consideration when you're watching a movie. A movie doesn't always have to have that same feeling every time you watch it that you had the first time. But, but it should feel like it's not a lesser experience because, like, the experience of it shouldn't 
be diminished so much just because you know what's going to happen. I feel like the journey should be important and that the end game, just knowing what the end game is, shouldn't make, shouldn't expose the journey so much as being less It shouldn't enjoyable. make it so, yeah. So my issue with the movie is that once you figure out that Christian Bale has a twin and once you figure out that Hugh Jackman is literally cloning and murdering his own clones... It's impossible not to see the breadcrumb trail. What they both the seem the so obvious now, right? Yeah. If you go back and watch it, like all of the hints that they give are very, very obvious. The clones seem obvious from the very moment you see the hats. Like, oh, they're clones of the hats, and with Bale's twin, um, Bor- with Borden's twin, the way they frame his engineer is pretty obvious that they're hiding who it is the whole time because they frame the cameras like right behind his head it's like whoa he's got poofy hair who's this guy i think it is a great disservice to the movie and to the concept of science in general to just write it off as magic it it drives me a little crazy because you have like I don't a real think it was writing it off as magic there's like it? a well there's like a real interesting thing to be discussed here in that apparently in 1800s magician filled London slash England we have an actual real working cloning device we have this idea that the man who goes in and the man who comes out are somehow the same despite one of them being a clone and the novel I I researched the differences between the novel and the movie and it appears that the novel attempts to expound upon this idea of like it has a whole idea of spiritualism like are you are you duplicating the soul can you duplicate the soul or whatnot but from what I read it looks like the book does a really terrible job of dealing with it as well so I will give Christopher Nolan the pass there on not even trying to go into that because when I started watching it my main issue was so Hugh Jackman's character his whole thing is that Aside from his, like, vicious ambition and wanting to destroy Borden, he wants to be the one on stage experiencing the applause. Mm -hmm. But if he's the one that drowns and the clone experiences it, is he really experiencing it? That's what I was wondering. Does he he have the clone? Okay, so, like, this is the second time I saw it, but I wasn't sure. Does he... Because I got the idea that... The Angiers we see at the end with the top hat and the limp and all that and the mustache, I thought that was the original, but then that made it so that the clone would have to be the one who introduced the trick and did the the trick, and then he was the one who walked out, but that doesn't work at all, does it? The original Angier is dead no matter what, because the first time he does it, if he's the one who transports, then he was shot by his clone, and if he's the one who doesn't transport, then he's the one who drowns the first time he does the trick. Yeah, so what we get into is when I was trying to parse this out in my head, for me, it seems that you either have to accept that there is no individual soul that, like, you could clone yourself and it would just be you continuing on in another body and, like, the other version of you would cease to exist, which to me is kind of unfathomable because I don't feel that there could be another version of myself just in another body um i will say i just had a thought so part of the movie is that angier's obsession 
and ambition drove him to finally get his hands dirty. Like, um, Borden specifically says to him, oh, I see you get your hands dirty now, basically. And the movie does explore this, but I want... It, the movie seems to present that obsession and ambition are what drove him to this. But if this is not the same Angier anymore... Is it possible that it was the cloning? So this is a clone. Is it possible that something in the cloning, this clone is different somehow? But the movie doesn't explore that at all, so I don't think you can give it the he credit was, for that. He was, he was pretty kind crazy of a shitty before. person before yeah. cloning. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty crazy before that. And honestly, the movie again, really hangs it up on the uh, the obsession too. Like that's the movie's big thing is obsession. Yeah, and again, that really gets into it. Again, is like what is the individual consciousness of Angier. Like, is that, does that same thing continue in his clone? Because to me, when I think about clones, I think of this is an identical duplicate copy of me, but mentally it could not be the same as me. Hmm. So the person that I watched this with, uh, my friend Ben argued that you, we don't know that our soul or whatever you want to call it is individually specific to us and if you were making a clone technically if it was a complete duplicate of you it would be exactly the same as you there would be no difference and like you would not be able to know which of you was the original or the correct one Gabe thoughts (laughs) all of this just makes it's kind of frustrating because I really love this movie but if they would have just done something else with the ending we wouldn't have to talk about all the semantics of this and just talk about how this is really a really good movie about how obsession destroyed two men's lives and that's the thing so maybe that's why it ended inception ambiguously it well it has this whole it has the movie is set up like the magic trick and the, the problem is that the prestige is really weird like i feel like if there had just been liter- yeah I, I agree with you gabe if there had been literally any other explanation then he literally clones himself and then murders his clones like i could have accepted almost anything else as an ending and gone away from this movie being like right. really because, like, satisfied the, the board and actually being twins thing is actually interesting and actually works and then the clone thing just muck it up with the clone thing yeah (laughs) that's true because with borden the reveal that he has a twin is it says a lot about their relationships with different people and it says a lot about what they've sacrificed and what they've done which is a theme throughout the movie like is that they are willing to live the act that's how much they care about their craft they're like the working man who's just he just does whatever he has to do to get the job done. He's the real, well, he's the working man, but he's also the real artist of the two. And also, like, that kind of commitment. And that kind of, like, imagine that kind of love for someone that yeah. you would be willing to, like, not. Because his brother doesn't really have a life. Like, his life is no, being no, his brother's double. No, because they already. They, they switch. Yeah, they switch back and forth. Remember they so, specifically. Okay, so, they, I guess, so I guess neither of them really has a life. Is yeah, what I'm saying. So they like, each have half a life. Imagine that kind of commitment. Like I love you. You're my best friend. But Aww. holy shit, I would never do that. You'd <laughs> also be hard pressed to make yourself look like. I me look ever. exactly like you. We are exactly the same height. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no one can tell the difference between us. I have pretty great boobs. <laughs> but yeah, so. I just that was I think that would have been another interesting thing that could have been more interesting to expound upon rather than literal clone magic would be like that kind of commitment to your brother and your shared dream of being 
the singular <laughs> to, greatest. Yeah, to the point where you drive your wife to suicide and then drive your mistress away. That is one of the worst things in the entire movie, I think. It makes me so sad. <laughs> like, just the idea that they collectively are so... And that's the thing, too, is it's hard to refer to Borden once you know the twist because neither of them is a fully formed individual person. They're both Borden. They literally... Yeah, they literally do not exist as separate people. So, like, once you know the twist, you can't really make a comment on Borden's character because he is not a singular character. He is two men trying to cobble together this facade of a person. But they're so much each other. But, yeah, so... The idea that, like, even they're so committed to this that it is not an issue, like, that he would not tell his own wife, like, you would think that that would come up at some point that he would just tell her so that she doesn't drive herself crazy. There could have been so many different ways to handle it for some things to have more emotional impact, like, uh, for an example, towards the end there's a scene where Borden says that he's going to take his daughter to the zoo and then we see him meet up with Fallon, so with his twin. And he says, oh, like, can you take her to the zoo? Like, I got stuff to do. And, like, can you help me out with my wife? And, like, through the first time through, you're like, wow, this guy's an asshole. He's just dumping his problems off onto his assistant. And if they could have handled it right, it could have been actually really emotionally impactful because it's him going, like, please, as my twin, help me salvage my life. But on the other hand, it's like, you asshole, you could just tell her. Yeah, so much. Yeah, that's how dedicated they are to their art, though. They I have think, to live it. You yeah, well, I suppose corners. again is the point. Like obsession destroys lives. Well, no, it's interesting because throughout the movie, Borden is like he is portrayed as like the good, like the good guy, quote unquote. He's the one that's being wronged by Angier. He's being hounded and like being hung and whatever. But like he, he murdered not a, his wife. Exactly, he is not a blameless man. Like I, he I ties t- the knot that the that Piper Perabo can't get out of. So he's responsible for her death. Whether like obviously he her name is Julie McCullough. Okay, whatever. You know what I mean? Whatever. Like he obviously didn't intend for her to die, but he is responsible for that. And then he also has the blood of his own wife on his hands. He has the emotional trauma of Olivia on his hands. Like, he's not a good man by any stretch of the imagination. But for some reason, because he's about to be wrongfully hanged, we kind of, it's easy to, like, gloss over that and, like, sympathize with him. I don't know. I've always read the movie more as, uh, one of the things I like about the movie is I read it as a more ambiguous uh, move, a more ambiguous tale that lacks a good guy or a bad guy. It's just these two flawed men who they're, they're not good. They're not bad. They're just people. They're just very they're ambitious. Just nice. <laughs> they're just very ambitious people. And like their obsession, ambition involves in different ways. But I like that. It's just the struggle between these two human beings, not this villain and this hero. And by the end, of course, a in, the Borden, Borden plural, uh, Borden Albert. collective. Albert uh, is the one who lives. Oh, yeah, that's right. They do have different names. Is yeah. it, is it it's, specified which one is the one that lives? Albert. Alfred. So the one who actually loved his wife and had the daughter. Yeah, that's okay. why. That's how you get the heartwarming bit out of it, is the one who loved the daughter lived to take care of the daughter. Yeah, I guess, yeah, for me... I was not aware that it was so plainly spelled out. I actually ended the movie a little confused as to which one lived. Yeah. Which is, which I was going to say was an interesting parallel with the Hugh Jackman thing, but apparently I was wrong. <laughs> so, um, also no, I, I was, I'm pretty sure he literally says, I loved Sarah. He loved 
yeah. Olivia. <laughs> yeah, they, okay. there are a couple moments in this movie where they have to distracted. be. Where there's a, there are a couple moments in this movie where the dialogue is very explicit exposition, expository stuff, so that you definitely know what's going to happen. Well, you almost have to have that though, because otherwise it's so shrouded in like this secrecy and this weirdness. Yeah, like one one of the times when uh, Angiers goes to talk to Bowie Tesla, uh, oh, whether when he's leaving, he's like, wait, they're like. Don't forget your hat. Which one is my hat? They all they are. are. All your hats, bro. And I was like, well, that is that is very on the nose. I think we got that. Let's talk about the other implication of this movie in that we could infinitely clone cats and have as many adorable versions of Phoebe as we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not know where you were going with that. I, I do want to say, going back to some of the stuff, and this is an adapted screenplay, obviously, but I think this comes up in much of their writing. Um, the Nolans, I think it comes across, they're good writers. In certain ways, they're very good writers at certain things, but they're not great writers. There are just certain things that they can't do as well in the scripts, usually involving probably the people, but... They're like pop good writers, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like there's a difference between a good piece of literature and a good piece of pop fiction. But their pop fiction looks like literature, and maybe that's why people love them so, so much. So exactly. It's easy to digest. It's sort of akin to Okay, so one of my favorite books in the entire world is House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. And I would argue that that is a pretty decent piece of like modern literature that will be recognized as a canon later. People may disagree with me on that, that's fine. Last year, J.J. Abrams, interestingly enough, helped co-write a book called S, which is kind of like the pop fiction version of House of Leaves and that like the formatting is weird. The plot's hard to follow. There's like a bunch of different things going on at once. And so like when I started reading that, that was the first thing that struck me was like, oh, this is a more digestible version of this, which is kind of what Christopher Nolan movies are to me. Like when you think about like Memento and following and all of his other stuff, it's really just like easier to digest versions of better movies or better plot lines. I do want to say pop fiction is not always no, inferior to literature. It's not a bad thing. I again have gone on record defending my love of Stephen King as an actual author, despite the fact that he probably has like a 40, 60 good to bad output. <laughs> Does that take into uh, account the good Steve. movies that Steve have King. bad endings? Steve um, King. Yes. Steve King. Steve. <laughs> Let me tell you a thing about Steve King. <laughs> no. Um, so yeah. So like, it's not bad to enjoy that kind of pop fiction but it's what is bad is when you have this rabid fanboy base that tries to hold it up as the be-all end-all amazing example of great writing and great plotting because really when you get down to it especially in in most of his movies but especially in this one the ending is sloppy as fuck like there is no way around it i'm sorry you can come up with the most convoluted imdb discussion board theory about how nolan just totally trolled all of us and we were wrong but it's sloppy. And that's oh. like the hallmark of some of his movies, I think. And like the ending of uh, Inception. Everybody's like, so mind blowing. You have to watch it 10 times to understand. No, you don't. I understood Inception the first time I watched it because I'm not a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, I do really like Inception. No, I, I and that's the thing. Like, I like I, all I of his like movies. I feel like that might, like that, that might be my favorite movie of his. Yeah, so it's like, I like all of his movies, yeah. but there's just like this weird fanatical blindness like, when not, it comes to him. They're not deeper than really like some surface level stuff. Like the prestige is about how obsession destroys these two men's lives. Like that's, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. And like inception is like 
the inability to let go of the past. It just happens to be set up against this like fantastical plot line that it's really it's it's also kudos to Wally Pfister because these movies do look really good even if you direct a terrible movie. <laughs> but yeah, so really what it is is I feel to kind of keep in with the theme is that they're really good at this like sleight of hand convincing you that there's more sleight of hand exactly that's like, a magic trick i know we so watched like, a movie about magic exactly so it's just <laughs> like it's convincing you that there's more to it than there really is and i guess that's like a good thing to have as a writer the first time so the first time you watch memento or the first time you watch inception or whatever it's like this mind-blowing experience but then when you go back it's kind of ruined because it's like well i can see what you're doing i understand now and it kind of saps the magic of it which is disappointing because i feel like a good movie that has a twist is still rewarding every time you watch it regardless of knowing the twist or not and that depends on all the other things like the building of the characters and things like that and how yeah. much you how much uh, weight you put on the things leading up to the reveal and how much weight you put on the other parts of the story that aren't just manufactured to engineer this reveal. It, it's like you said earlier, if if the story is good enough, whether you know the twist or not shouldn't matter exactly to how yeah. much you and how good the movie is. I was actually thinking the whole time, like, you know, Christopher Nolan might not be so different from M. Night Shyamalan. A number of his movies are... Oh my en- god, somebody's gonna firebomb our apartment now. <laughs> <laughs> like, this wow. movie, Inception, they're kind of, like... And like, the, he is... the Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan, like, are much bet- more deft at handling it. But I was just thinking about how a lot of people criticize him, not Shyamalan, because his movies are based on this twist. And the Nolans are better than that. Their twists are more ingrained. Like, they don't come out of nowhere for the most part. For the most part, they are ingrained throughout the whole movie, and they're much better written. But I was just thinking about how, you know, their movies kind of work the same way, like The Sixth Sense. When you watch this, or maybe, or some of it, Shyamalan's other movies, like, they probably don't work as well the second time through because you know what the twist is, and the other stuff isn't done well enough to make up for not knowing the twist exactly for knowing yeah the twist, i feel like the main difference it. is that christopher and jonathan nolan are actually good writers yes and m night Shyamalan is absolutely not a good writer no like if uh, like m night Shyamalan's kind of going for the same thing though like if m night Shyamalan had more talent i think he would have that same that same nolan-esque fan base after him it's interesting because i i feel like Shyamalan's like big downfall is his own narcissism yeah. because take lady in the water for example he just had to be the character that magically turned out to be the hero in the end that could fix everything at least really? christopher nolan is a jamming himself into the movie exactly like right. christopher nolan will go out of his way to remind you that he is the most clever man in the room but it will at least still be tasteful and like artistic enough that yeah. it won't bother you nearly as much but yeah so I mean, and you're furthering my point that uh the prestige is just way more well acted than all of M. Night Shyamalan's bad movies. Look, Signs is an artistic masterpiece of our time. <laughs> Mel Gibson should have won an Oscar. Oh my god. I, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I just wasn't prepared for that. That's another thing, like, even if the... That's another thing, is that the acting is so good in this movie. Like, the characters might not... On paper, the characters might not work super well, but because it's Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, and even even Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall, who don't get a lot to do, are really good in those roles. And yeah, they're like there's really good acting in this movie. I think that's another thing Christopher that helps Christopher Nolan is he's able to get these really good, really talented, and also big name casts. Yeah, 
that can make the that can elevate the material. Exactly. And really, if you're thinking about it, since it is an adapted screenplay, I do want to like be a little bit more forgiving there because yeah. I do think that he did the reading the synopsis of the novel. I really feel like they kind of did the best they could yeah. because holy moly, if you think the ending of the movie was silly, the ending of the book is they accidentally create a ghost clone of Angers. And so, like, the ghost clone is, like, non-corporeal, but, like, has all of the same feelings and whatnot. And in the end, like, when they make the clone, it makes the corporeal Angers ill. And so, in the end, he dies, and the ghost clone uses the machine to try and teleport himself back into the body. And, like, the whole novel is told as him being a ghost talking to Borden's grandson. Yeah. What? I have no yeah maybe, it maybe, sounds pretty again, bad <laughs> i read this movie summary. won awards i know i read the summary the book, I mean. so maybe there is something like in the writing of the book that makes it not so goddamn I'm, ridiculous i'm sure there are like there are steve king novels that are kind of the same way where if you ex like if you explain them and take time to explain uh, them to be fair like us just talking about the movie version like if you just read a synopsis of the end of the movie version you would probably not think that this is a great movie Exactly. So, like, I I don't know. It To me, it looks like they cobbled together the best of, like, they did the best they could with what, again, is ultimately a ridiculous concept. But, uh, <laughs> I just am so, I just, I feel like, I feel like a broken record because I keep going back to this, but, like, I just can't get over why, why, why is that the payoff? Is that murder clones? I don't know. I still don't hate that as much as you do. <laughs> I mean, I'm, just, I'm just more open to sci-fi yeah, in my I, life. Well, but, I'm, I like sci-fi, but yeah. I don't know. It, to me, it feels like a total cop-out. Like, it feels like a total... It feels like it completely strays from the main point and the main idea of the movie. Like, either give me a movie that is rooted in the science of this, That's which true. would have been good, Most of it or is, yeah. give me a movie that is rooted in magic and sleight of hand and figuring it out that way. Trying to mix the two of them does not work. Anytime you try to mix magic and science and fiction, it never works. <laughs> That's true. I suppose most of the movie is spent showing how the tricks are real. Like, there isn't actual magic, and then... I don't know, because what he does is supposed to be science. Like, it's it's science incorporated to a magic act. You just have the guy who's like, oh, I haven't seen real magic in a long time. But there's also, like, there's no scientific way that what happens there could actually be possible. You're so it is magic. David like, Bowie. David, yeah. D- David, David Bowie. Star powers. Dave Bowie. Dave Bowie. Dave Bowie. <laughs> who just announced, as we record this, that there's a new album coming. I credit us. You're welcome. We made it happen. Mm-hmm. I got on the <laughs> phone with Dave, and he was just like, you know, I'm feeling it. You guys are trashing my character and, like, everything in this movie. But... No, no, we are trashing everything but Dave Bowie in this movie. <laughs> Dave Bo- David Bowie me. is fantastic <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> Love <Yeah>. Dave Bowie. <laughs> but, yeah, so I guess that's Gabe. Does anyone else have anything else to say? So I, I kind of lost. I, I will say that, well, I, I, I do think the ending is silly, but I think I'm more on... Tyler's side of it doesn't swag super affect my enjoyment of the movie i think the problem is that i watched it with my friend ben who is very like very scientifically minded so i may have been influenced by his total like it doesn't work <laughs> and i'm terrible I was, at science so i, I was willing to go. roll with the science of it and that it was 
science incorporated to the magic act. I didn't think of it as suddenly there's real magic in the movie. I guess it, it requires a, a, a suspension of disbelief. Yeah. That is, like, almost a little bit too much for me, despite how much... Like, for me, when I watch this movie, I have to, like, kind of turn off the part of my brain. I have to just be like, this is an entertaining movie that I like. It's pretty. It has good acting. That's all you need to care about. I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't even... I'm okay with the science stuff. Like, the, the, in this world of the movie, cloning is possible at that time. Tesla figured it out. He's a genius. Um, I guess where I you can really lose it is it getting to the soul stuff of it and how it could be the same person still. Which they don't touch on at all. And I think would have that, That's what was, that was in the movie. They cut it out because they already have so many themes in this movie. They have all the themes of this movie already. And I don't know. I, was, I, I am okay with them going this route. I do have to say the one thing that really sticks out to me, though, is that kind of, like, devolution of Angiers, which is really well done and I really appreciate Because, like, I kind of forgot by the end of the movie that he was the one who said he didn't want to kill Canaries. No. And... He's Borden, willing to get his hands dirty now. Yeah, and Borden clearly had no issue with that. So, to me, in the end, they kind of do a complete switch in which Angiers becomes, like, this maniacal, like, I'll do whatever it takes. And then Borden is the one who, like, is willing to give up his secrets to protect his daughter. He's willing to... Yeah, he, ultimately die. He Andrew Andrew became what he is because he thought Borden was worse, or but in doing that he became what he thought Borden was, except you know a worse version of what he thought Borden was. Yeah, you know the theme really, of the movie. Really, Borden wasn't like he was just living his act, which isn't good for the people around him, but is not inherently evil. No. Whereas murdering a hundred different versions of yourself is inarguably evil. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it, I mean, this is, it does this give is us after the trying to shoot him on stage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, that happened really early. Yeah, because the finger thing. Yeah. I forgot about that. <laughs> Good point, Gabe. He turns. If I was, if I was the second, immediately. if I was the second twin, I would have been like, nope, fuck this. Like I'm out. To You're not fair, cutting well, off yeah. my fingers. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. I guess that comes back to what I was kind of touching on earlier. Is like they don't really have their own individual ambitions. They have this weird shared ambition to be singularly the greatest magician alive. And I guess I just wonder how much of their lives they spent not being like their whole what, life. At what age did they decide they were going to do this? Like yeah, start like switching. It, yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm just curious about the background of this where they decide that it's better to be one whole person than two whole people and how you get, to people with their own like or, individual hopes and dreams on board with such a concept or maybe it's like how you know some movies will feel like they got a good a concept they loved and they just ran with that at the exception at the expense of everything else maybe they just thought of this one great trick and they're like you know what we're gonna base our entire lives off of this perfect great trick and they just went from there I don't feel like that's it though. I feel no, like it's I definitely that deeper than joke. that. <laughs> I feel I just I just really would like to be able to understand the psych the psychology behind I that. Have, it doesn't really get into the twins at all. The way you say it's something, Gabe? Yeah, I think it's interesting because the movie it it splits screen time pretty well, but I'd say the movie is primarily from Angier's point of view. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see a cut of this movie or a version of this movie that was more from the board inside of it and see if that would be different. I do think which is interesting because Borden's the one who survives. Borden is the frame character. 
but yeah, it is a lot of it's from Andrew's perspective because the twin reveal is the one that keep the the twin secret is the one that carries most of the movie. That's it, it doubles on the twist at the end. Double twist, chill on the twist, guys. Well, the twist, yeah. I mean, the twist, the double twist is necessary yeah. because it kind of points out that Angier's had the answer the whole time. Cutter tells him right in the beginning he's yeah. using a double, mm-hmm. and he is so obsessed with like ruining him that he refuses to believe that that could possibly be the case. And then when he finds out, he's like, "Oh shit! It's almost like." I did all of this for nothing because you were just using a double. <laughs> oh shit, I'm bleeding to death from the gunshot wound. <laughs> oh yeah, that too. He probably thinks that too. <laughs> and that's besides all the other twists in the movies invo- involving Scarlett Johansson's assistant who's mostly a pawn who falls in love with people for the most part. and Which I feel is such an underuse of Scarlett Johansson. But... Oh yeah. yeah, Scarlett Johansson is totally energies also when this movie opens the fact that it's framed by michael michael kine speaking if christopher nolan came out with another movie now that was framed by michael kane speaking i feel like the internet would collectively just go are you fucking kidding me with this again michael kane in every goddamn movie do not go dark into that or no, what is that the quote from Interstellar? <laughs> I don't know. Do not go quiet into that dark night, blah, blah, blah. I killed humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I am Michael Kine. Michael Kine. Michael Kine. So, uh, Michael Kine! <laughs> on that note, I feel like that about wraps up the discussion on the movie. Gabe, do you have any closing points that you needed to talk about still? Uh, for how much we just went over how little sense the end of this movie makes, it's still a really, really good movie and probably my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, it's like, again, that was why I really wanted to preface with, like, we all like the movie. (laughs) It's about to make it sound like we don't, but we do. This movie is beautifully shot and... I just, it's so pretty. Tremendously acted, too. Yeah, it's very pretty. It's very well acted. Everybody really does the best with what they have to make a still fairly stunning film. And the better of the magician films in that year, in my opinion. So, yes. Tyler, any closing points? (laughs) I do think, and this, I mean, we've already gone over this, but I do think it's interesting that a lot of the, the times it seems like what we think the strong the weakest part of the Nolan films are are things the Nolans bring to it even though they're the ones who put the their entire films together like they're the architects behind all like the entire movie oftentimes it's the Nolans themselves who we think are the weakest parts of the movie I mean, it's kind of indicative of how a lot of directors get away with things is that everybody else does a lot of the heavy lifting and then they get to take the credit for it. I feel like Christopher Nolan does a lot of heavy lifting and Jonathan Nolan a lot of heavy lifting on putting their movies together, though. I don't know. Jonathan Nolan definitely doesn't get a lot of love. It's all about Chris. Chris all the time. Because he's off screen. Yeah. Which sucks. They're both off screen. Jeez. I mean, you know what I mean? One's he's a director. Okay, sh- you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, so uh, recommendations this week. Gabe, what is your recommendation? Uh, you kind of alluded to it, and I have a feeling that I liked this movie more than you did, but. Uh, in 2006, either shortly before or after this movie came out, there was another magician movie that came out called The Illusionist, which is more of like a romance movie, but 
it's interesting to watch that alongside this. So that is my recommendation. I do want to say, I actually, I really liked The Illusionist and held off on watching The Prestige for a long time because I was like, man, seriously, you guys just had to do this. Also, who is the main female in that movie? It's the one that looks exactly like Scarlett Johansson, which is hilarious to me. Jessica Beale. <laughs> yeah. I used to get them mixed up all the time, so it's super funny to me that they're each in this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Tyler, your recommendation for the week. That's a good question. Oh, my God. I forgot to. I couldn't find anything good, and then I got distracted by making jokes about how X Men: The Last Stand is my recommendation for this week. Uh, <laughs> Hugh Jackman's other great 2006 blockbuster, X Men: The Last Stand. I am four seconds away from punching you in the face. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I will do I'll... my recommendation for the week since Tyler is completely unprepared. We've been talking for an hour and forty minutes, and he hasn't cobbled together <laughs> anyway uh so my recommendation for the week is the first movie directed by ryan johnson who you may remember as the director of my all-time favorite movie the brothers bloom and soon to be director of star wars episode eight or nine i can't remember which one he's doing but um anyway it's called eight. it's called brick it stars baby joseph gordon levitt and baby emily de Raven. uh it is a neo-noir like hard-boiled detective mystery set in a high school setting and it is really well done and really interesting and also has a lot of intrigue and trying to figure out who did what and how things are happening and has a twist at the end so if you are interested in a vaguely related and also really well done and interesting premise please watch brick um tyler have you figured a thing out or would you like me to just be deeply disappointed in you you know what I really couldn't think of a good recommendation that went along with this I wasn't super into the illusionist Harry Potter seemed like too easy of a magic thing to go to although you should rewatch some Harry Potter why not it's your childhood I just uh, when you look at IMDB it's like oh other great movies of the year Shutter Island which no! we've been over <laughs> we've been over I don't just like a lot of the movies that feel like this. I just don't feel like recommending them. They came around those the same time. So in the interest of uh, keeping it with the tradition of watching a David Bowie movie, talking about a David Bowie movie, hearing the news of a David Bowie movie album coming out soon next year. I think we should go back to the seminal David Bowie movie and watch the 90 days classic labyrinth. Oh my gosh. I actually haven't seen labyrinth since I was a child. <laughs> So I'm curious to see how that would hold up. Well, that's up. my recommendation, Kayla. You should watch uh, the... Uh, this is David Bowie as a still mysterious but pretty upstanding scientist guy with a mustache in Nikola Tesla. Let's watch David Bowie go ham as the Goblin King. Would be good. All right. So my trivia for this week is actually kind of interesting. So Sarah's line, I know what you are, was not in the script, and Rebecca H Rebecca Hall felt, like, really bad about it because she thought she had totally given away the ending. But I really liked that rewatching it because I think it gives Sarah kind of more of a little bit of, like, grit. Like, she's not just, like, this weeping woman who can't figure out why her husband only loves her sometimes. Like, she figures it out. She figures it out before anybody else can, and it scares the shit out of him, and it's hilarious. And then it's sad. <laughs> and then it it's is, so sad it is weird to me I forgot to mention this during the discussion that she kills herself off screen 
well, do you want to see that happen? Because I don't want to no, see that happen. No, but I don't know. It just didn't seem fitting. I don't. It didn't. The women work. really get the short end of the stick in this movie entirely. What? Piper Parabot dies immediately, becomes entire impetus for thing happening. Scarlett Johansson. Scarlett like Johansson. Yeah, is a tool and is ultimately not truly loved by either of the men that she was with. And just kind of disappears. Rebecca Hall kills herself. Given our usual line of discussion, it's kind of surprising we didn't go into that more. But uh, it just—it just kind of—it just isn't a part of this movie, weirdly. Or it is, but like, it's, I don't know. It's not worth discussing because it's so blatantly obvious. This Honestly, we can all—we can all see it happening. We can all—we all at this point, if you're listening to the podcast, you understand why I would have an issue with this. We don't really need to talk about it again. But yeah, so I, I have a piece of trivia too. Yes, oh, please. Just intruding on the <laughs> trivia. Go for it. Okay, so pretty early in the movie, uh, Borden and Angier go to see a magician named Chung Sing Su, and they are given the task to figure out how he does his trick. And part of the foreshadowing of the movie is that Borden figures out that he is not actually an old Chinese man like he appears to be and is actually like this young dude who's really strong. And that's how he disguises people. That's how he disguises his tricks, so people don't know. That is based on a real person who actually did that. Wow. Wait, wasn't it like a white guy pretending to be an Asian yeah, guy though? This, in real yeah, life? this white guy lived 19 years in public as an old Chinese man. Gross. Yep, that was a real person. So Dedication gross. to his craft. <laughs> so and then gross. he got shot on stage and died. You know what? Honestly, I don't even feel bad for him. He deserved it, probably. Was he doing the gun trick? Because that's so yes, amateur. Yes, he was. Wait, for real? Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he seriously got killed catch. by a bullet catch gone wrong. Oh, my God. Wasn't... It's all coming together. Yep. But, yeah. So, uh, Tyler, what is your interesting fun stat of the week? Oh, my fun stat is in line with much of our conversation. The Christopher Nolan has directed nine movies Seven of them are on the IMDb 250. The only ones left out are Following and Insomnia. Because the IMDb not only loves white crime dramas, they also love them some Christopher Nolan so badly. They love him. In fact, three of his movies are in the top 50, including The Dark Knight at number four, Interstellar at 29, and, and another one. That slipped my mind. But yeah, one. they love Christopher Nolan so much. He has even a higher percentage of his movies are on there than even other IMDb favorite Quentin Tarantino. Is it is it this one that's in the top fifty? It might be. That's a good oh, question. Inception. It's Inception. Ah, yep, yep. So yeah, we will be coming back to the discussion of Christopher Nolan. I'm sure a few more times, as we said when we did the six more. When we did the uh, Reservoir Dogs episode, which is funny because it was Gabe for that episode, too. Oh, Gabe. Oh. God. But yeah, so uh, that about wraps that up. Next week, we will be joined again by the actual host of our podcast, Kyle Minton. We haven't exactly tacked out what movie we're going to be doing, so we'll do some fun stuff and like tease it on our Twitter throughout the week. Uh, we are eternally grateful for you listening to us ramble on again. If you need to get in contact with us for any reason, you can always email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com. Uh, probably an easier and more interactive way to get a hold of us. You can follow us on Twitter at ltrfipod as well. 
we have a Tumblr page, which includes our show notes, some interesting things that Tyler has written. It will eventually include some interesting things that I have written. I have been tragically preoccupied this week. I apologize for that. Um, that is letttherightfilmsin.tumblr.com. And brand new, still kind of, we have a Facebook page now. It is facebook.com slash letttherightfilmsin. We would be eternally grateful if you would like that and keep up with us. We're going to be trying to use that as kind of our main hub from now on because that just makes sense. Uh, we'll probably be doing some fun advertising at some point. Um, Facebook rules everything around me. Yeah. So it'd be really fun. We appreciate seeing you guys like that. We have actually had a pretty amazing outpouring of love already for our new Facebook page. And we are really grateful for that. So, yeah. Uh, Thank you, Gabe, for being on the podcast. We love you deeply. Thank you for having me. (laughs) No, not at all. But, yeah. So we will see you guys next week with whatever movie we decide to settle on. And, yeah. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. And Michael Kine says, remember, Jurassic Park is a terrible movie. Jurassic World. Will be. Jurassic World is oh, not Jurassic shit. Park. Jurassic Park Sorry. is a good movie. No, wait. And Michael Caine says, remember, Jurassic World is a terrible movie and always will be. going to turn into Sean Connery. Yeah, I'm really confused. <laughs> yeah. that I can only was. do Michael Kine because the trip to Italy taught me to say Michael it like Kine. Michael Kine. Jonathan Cutter. As soon as it goes to anything else, I start to lose it. All I can say is Michael Kine. Featuring things from our childhood. Hold up. There is a cat in here and I need to kick him out. No. Be gone with the devil. How dare you call my cat a devil? Not well, easy. First devil. of all. Anyways, I am back. Okay. <clears throat> mm. Yay! All right. So I'm gonna open up the blanket and let some air in. Oh my god. <laughs> Jonathan right. Cutter. <laughs> so Michael Jonathan Cutter, as played by Michael Kine, oh, is the only character that matters in this entire movie. So the prestige. Michael Kine. God, will you please stop? <laughs> I never do that, so I'm judging you very much right now. Yeah, please cut this out. Nope. Keeping it in the podcast. Keeping this awkward space <laughs> in the podcast. Yeah. But yeah, so, and also, 